Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. The Bureau is dedicated to digging up, disinterring, excavating half-remembered, lost, countercultural, buried stories. And I'm here with my fellow digger, my fellow archaeologist, Paul Hartfield. Today's edition of the Bureau is dedicated to the English underground music scene in the 1960s. We keep coming back to that, of course. And it's a vast subject, and we couldn't possibly enter that vast underground labyrinth without the help of a guide. And what a guide we have, somebody who really lived it in his youth. He grew up deep in the heart of the West London countercultural scene, leading a charmed life. In later life, became very famous with his band, The Dream Academy, and he became a TV presenter, and then, more utterly, a film composer, most recently writing the score for Nick Broomfield's film about Leonard Cohen and his early muse Marianne, Words of Love. He is, of course, Nick Laird Clues. Hello, Nick. Great to be here. Nick, we talk about the English underground. What does it mean? I mean, what does it mean to you, anyway? Well, in 1967... When I was 10, 1967, you'd have had a very few hundred people who were embodying the hippie movement in London and dotted around the country. Post-Woodstock, 1969, that had reached several hundred thousand. And these were people who were looking for a new way of, a more idealistic way of being. And the music and drugs and spiritual search were all rolled in with the fashion um, into this rolling art scene. And it was extremely magnetic if you were a 11, 12-year-old, um, and particularly living in Notting Hill, which was Notting Hill Gate before the Richard Curtis film, where young artists who didn't have any money were trying to live in the cheapest places possible, but which happened to be kind of beautiful but very run down. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, we say the English underground, now we'll, I'll state straight away, is that half my family's Scottish, and we were just talking about Scotland, and um, I think we use this sort of phrase, English underground, I mean, rather than say London underground, because the that gets confused with the tube. It, you're right. Um, I'm not sure, was it particularly English, or uh, we're not being no, regionalist no, here? it wasn't English. It was, uh, the Scots were were mm. a big part of it. I mean, you had the incredible string band, mm. uh, and, I, I, you know, people were going to Scotland and to Ireland to um, live in gypsy caravans and things like that. Donovan, we know, was up in the islands, and people went there to, to live in communes. No, I think it was... It was an alternative society. That was its other name. And it was people trying to find a new way post-war 
and post the beat era you know this was it blossoming into a a new alternative society who would live by their own rules and money didn't have much to do with it it didn't seem to me that anybody seemed we everybody seemed to live on a sort of 10 pounds a week and start up magazines or work at magazines or sell street IT and Oz in the streets and things it was um it's interesting. They didn't seem to get into money till about 1975, right? <laughs> 76. You are, of course, a denizen. You're a, you're a sort of proper Londoner, born and bred in uh, Notting Hill. Five and generations to me. Five generations. Five generations Notting Hill, actually. Let's go back. Tell yeah. us that story, actually, before we dig into the actual underground itself. Uh, my family uh, go back uh, to uh, Cheshire and uh, Macclesfield, and then around, that's about till about 200 years ago and then they moved to Ivor, Buckinghamshire and then they moved to London um, when the houses were built in Kensington, Holland Road my uh, great-great-grandfather bought uh, a house and we know about it because he had the first bath <laughs> not the first in his life but the first one obviously locals were sh- uh, his neighbours were shown around it he had the bath so that's pretty good yes um, and 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 it's gone on ever since. We've we've all lived in the same area, so it's it's nice. I mean, it's a village. It's beautiful still, actually, isn't it? I mean, massive change has gone on there. But for you, you know, being born and growing up there and seeing all that stuff running, what was your childhood like then? It was, it was fairly indistinct till about 1964, when Top of the Pops started, and very soon. On the heels of that came Ready, Steady, Go. And I started listening and watching these things. My mother bought back the first Beatles singles, but that, that they, they, we loved them. But watching these other bands, particularly uh, the Yardbirds, really somehow connected with me. And we went to see, we begged our parents to see the Beatles, and we went to see the Beatles at uh, Hammersmith Odium, which was brilliant. And um, from then on, it was really, we were up and running, and I think uh, then you, people had talked to you about Carnaby Street, and you'd go there and see that. But as I got to about 11, 12, Kensington Market was the great mm. place. Everybody, it, um, you know, Freddie Mercury worked in Johnson & Johnson on the first floor. Downstairs was a brilliant record store where they'd play the new Doors albums and things like that. Um, and slowly you could see things changing in Notting Hill Gate itself, where the Pizza Express is now. There was a place called the Golden Age of Gingerbread, and it was purple, and it had rainbows, you know, those stylized rainbows, those pop-art rainbows. They were all around the wall, and uh, long-haired, bearded folk were serving you your Coca-Cola <laughs> or whatever it was. I don't think it was quite brown rice by then. But you could feel that something was changing, and then by 67, you know, you saw Sid... Um, with the Floyd playing C. Emily play on top of the pops. And, I mean, it just was so appealing mm. and something was happening. And um, I just wanted to be part of it, but I couldn't. <laughs> I was too young, so I got as far as I could. We sat outside Apple. That was fantastic. You know, we, we got as close as we could. Uh, I wrote to John and Yoko with the disc and music echo uh, in a competition and, and won the competition. What? And they mm. sent back a 
John wrote a postcard with a picture of himself and Yoko on it and wrote to Nick Laird, who heard. I mean, that at 12, that completely blew my oh, mind. Lord. And the, the envelope he'd written himself and he'd written it upside down. John, I thought. <laughs> you know, have you still uh, got it? God, have I ever? <laughs> I, I, certainly, I certainly have, yeah. And... Um, See, I think we, before we even rattle on, I mean, we should just mark out the fact that we are with somebody who saw the Beatles, Paul. That's the first, isn't it? One touch away. One touch away. And then also um, uh, got a letter from John Lennon. Yeah, I haven't. You? No, no, no. no. no good. That's amazing. And did, did Yoko, was Yoko involved in the letter or was it just from John? No, it was John and Yoko. John, everything was John and Yoko. And my, my, my letter to Disc and Music Echo had been to say that every morning before I went to school, I listened to... Everybody hated the two virgins when it came out. It wasn't mm. the Beatles. I don't know what they were they, What were they doing? This stuff was absolutely insane. Nobody could listen to this rubbish. So um, part of you know, what do you think to the to the young folk who read disco music well I'm listening to it every morning before I go to school that do you remember, was it. Do you remember what number it was I have a collection of uh, that uh, oh. <laughs> I'm going to have to dig it out I'll, I'll, I'll have a look yeah, I'll have a look yes okay. yeah so you could actually that's amazing I'm just goggling at the fact that you could write a letter via disc music echo yeah. and it would actually find its way to it's John it's so Lennon. amazing um, mm-hmm. Anthony Fawcett who was his PA at the time I always looked after him in some way who I got to know later in the 80s he, he said to me of course I said, do you think John actually wrote the letter? He said, John wrote everything. The point is, by then, the English underground, what was so wonderful about it, through the psychedelia and acid and all the things, and, you know, say, the Alexandra Palace, the Technicolor dream and everything, um, everybody was on the same playing field. And so... The underground, uh, you remember there's only a few hundred thousand of these people in the whole of the British Isles. Everybody's looking to the West Coast and seeing what's going on there as the sort of leaders, really, of it. And then the Beatles were approach completely approachable. I mean, look at Apple. They just got people in. They've signed people. They invited us, you know, their, 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 their representatives invited us to go in when we'd sat outside freezing for a couple of hours, you know, and gave us an Abbey Road songbook and things, and, you know, war is over postcard. Um, and So exciting. Incredibly exciting. And that's what made me feel that I just had to go to the Isle of Wight when I heard that the Isle of Wight 1970 Pop Festival was was happening. I just said to my school friends, I've been now I've been thrown out of my my school and I was um, I had a sort of co-ed sort of tutorial with older girls, which was just brilliant, um, and uh, other boys my age, but sort of reprobates and. Um, we started talking about going to the Isle of Wight. Well, my parents said, there's no way that you can go to the Isle of Wight. I mean, you know, you're 13, you've got a broken arm. And uh, so I concocted a very, very complex, uh, terrible st- thing to call my father as in the guise of a old, uh, older woman, um, a school friend's uh, mother, who was inviting my sister and I for the for the for the bank holiday weekend, and could he just put us on a train, not to the Isle of Wight, unfortunately, um, to some place I'd picked at random, and he he went for it, and uh, we went to the Isle of Wight, oh. and we ran away. It was uh, and it was incredible because that was six months after Woodstock. The bands were the Who, everybody, Hendrix. I mean, people were playing the same sets, uh, and. I just had to go. I had to be... I, I felt that I had to catch it while it was still there, and it was now 1970. And um, it was the most incredible thing because, actually, I know 
13 broken arms sounds early and irresponsible, but you've got to follow your bliss, as mm. Joseph Campbell would say. I knew what I had to do, and my life completely changed from that moment, from going there, the people I met there. Um, I, you know, I, I'm still in contact with them, and they changed my life through that. I think that's a perfect moment to play your first tune because we are going to walk through this story with a musical accompaniment that you've uh, uh, some beautiful things that you've picked. So let's hear the first one. Tell us about that one. That's By Your Grace um, by Beaver and Kraus um, featuring Jerry Mulligan. It was recorded in Grace Cathedral using the actual reverb of the cathedral in San Francisco, the huge reverb. And um, uh, Beaver and Kraus were um, electronic music pioneers who had made uh, the first synthesizer albums, uh, not Wendy Carlos, but they were real pioneers. And... Um, they recorded this on their album by your oh, this is called by your grace and i think it's um sanctuary i think the album's called and a wild sanctuary um and when i got back from the isle of wight i started going to the roundhouse every sunday there'd be something called implosion and jeff dexter was the dj he'd been the dj at middle earth at joe boyd's club where the floyd soft machine and everyone had played and he ran these things called Implosion, and you had six bands on. You'd get there on a Sunday afternoon about 1 o'clock, and you'd leave at about 10 o'clock and catch the last bus home. And everyone was there. You later found, you know, Jeff Travis from Rough Trade. We were all children, kids. Mick Jones very much in my scene there. I'm a huge Mott the Hoople fan. Um, lots and lots of people... And you'd wander around and smoke your first joint and uh, and settle down and watch these extraordinary bands who were English underground bands and then usually one big American band like perhaps Bozgags who'd been in uh, Steve Miller's band so before Steve, before he was a soul crooner and uh, or sometimes uh, people who'd been at Woodstock like Shanana and things. Or the new Pink Floyd album, Atom Heart Mother, I think it was probably the Echoes was the track, would be previewed there. They'd bring it down and we'd all lie on the ground in the dark and listen to it. You know, and there was about two or three hundred of us and every week I'd go. And every week I would ask the DJ or every couple of weeks when I had got up my nerve, I'd ask him to play some really obscure underground classic by Pearls Before Swine or something that I really loved. And after about a month, he said, um, hey, you know, you really like these obscure, you know, these great tracks. Um, maybe you should become my assistant. You could um, learn to be a DJ and be my apprentice. And um, I'm going to start managing bands soon. And then in the end, you could take over from me. So I said, God. <laughs> well, I, I didn't do anything about it for a few weeks. And then 
I, I hadn't got the money one week, and he came out and said, I hear, I hear you're out here, you haven't, you haven't got the money, come in, I, you don't have to pay anymore, come in and be my assistant. So, so I went and became, started assisting him and learning how to do that, and this was, he was the DJ at all the Hyde Park free concerts. He, um, every Sunday, he would open proceedings with that track, By mm. Your Grace, by Beaver and Krauss, and it's the sound of, I think it's the best of what was happening really that the the spiritual search the mm. search for an alternative way of being is embodied in that track and also echoes the 50s because you've got um where it probably helped start with um because you've got Jerry Mulligan playing the sax who was Miles Davis's mm. cohort etc um so that was all uh pretty thrilling uh because suddenly um, instead of just doing the roundhouse, which was great because you'd find yourself in a dressing room with Cheech and Chong smoking a sort of 12-inch <laughs> joint before they went on, they really did get completely stoned. Um, or you, or better, it started to be things like um, The Who are going to play at uh, the Oval and, um, you know, Rod and the Faces have just started. They're, they're, Rod's got this thing called Maggie May. He's got a solo album out too. And... Um, you know, this is when Rod still produced his own albums, fueled on brandy, not sitting in the back with a blonde on his knee. <laughs> and um, and 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 so, you know, we're going to do this uh, this 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 huge gig. And of course, by now, you know, I want you to be my assistant. So, it's like, oh, fantastic! Friends had bought tickets. I was going to be on mm. the stage with these people. And uh, but I, 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 um, Jeff Dexter, of course, in the spirit of the moment, took acid and. Uh, <laughs> He was suddenly incapacitated in his cricket whites with his cricket bat to for the oval, and he said, "You'll have to take over." So uh, <laughs> I, 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 I started. I went back on some, you know, some immortal classics like "Hey Jude," and suddenly, you know, twenty-five thousand, thirty thousand people were, 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 were singing along to the end of "Hey Jude." I felt like my moment had arrived when. Keith Moon in a dressing gown and wielding that cricket bat came and smashed this thing like and tore off Hey Jude in the middle of a na 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 and slammed on Barbara O'Reilly, a white label of Barbara O'Reilly of the Who's next album. You never played the band before they came on and you certainly didn't play a track that nobody had ever heard. And he slammed that on and I fucking take that. So it was like and on it, ding, 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 uh, you know, that, and so that was uh, very exciting. And standing behind, the faces had a bar on stage, which was great, and they were just amazing. And, and, and Rod was now singing Maggie Man and things. It was fantastic. But um, when The Who came on, it was, you know, it was Pete in his, in his white... Uh, these white overalls and and then playing the SG and you know at the end of the set you know he smashed the SG and I was standing behind the amp and Jeff Dexter said to me this is the greatest rock and roll band in the world and they were incredible God, <clears throat> amazing stuff listen Nick before we race on because I mean it's just all rolling out here isn't it I want to I want to backtrack for a, for a moment actually because um, I mean that track was it did sort of seem to evoke that spirit of that spiritual search and stuff now i want to go back just to you 
as a 13-year-old arriving at the Isle of Wight Festival. You've got a broken arm, you've lied to your dad to get there, but then you've already seen the Beatles and you've already had a letter from John Lennon, so you're, you're pumped up, let's say that, you're charged. Yes. Um, what was that like being at the Isle of Wight Festival? I mean, was it nuts? Ah, it was, it was incredible because we met some people on the train, uh, a couple, and uh, we... We hadn't got tickets, and we couldn't sit in the lavatories anymore, so we we sat in first class. I couldn't think of anything else to do. The rest of it was packed with, with hippies. So we sat there, and unbelievably, this couple got on at the next stop, and they, I said, are you going to the Isle of Wight? And he said, yeah. Um, and then we started talking about the new Neil Young album, and I said, oh, yeah, but I mean, that second guitar solo on the fourth track, so I'd, and he said, hold on, yeah. That's, that's right. That is the best solo. And I thought, my God, instead of being told to shut up, I'm with my, you know, with my people. This is, And we told them what we were doing. I was with my sister. And I said, we'd run away and blah, blah, and we had no money. And he said, well, we can give you some money and you can stay in our tent. And, um, and we did. And the first thing that happened when we got there was... Uh, I mean, it was incredibly arrived and everybody was hiding their dope because they were trying to get on the ferry and the police were busting people and things. And we got there, they set up their tent and we went straight into the auditorium. The, it was uh, the auditorium, sorry, the, the festival site. <laughs> Being that I was so small and have never seen so many people, I thought these were coloured rags. I couldn't work out this predominantly blue from the denim and then these other cars. As we were approaching the site, it was like, I just thought, these are, these are coloured rags. What is this? And then they became clear these were people. We get in there, and the first thing that happens is it's pitch black. We're standing there. Everyone's on you know, the stage is over there glowing. And uh, it's like, ladies and gentlemen, instead of, you know, Freddie and the Dreamers or something, hello, yeah, you know, Isle of Wight, the doors! And bam, they run on, and it's like, God, they kicked into what was an incredible set. You know, Jim, big beard, crisp white shirt. People say, oh, he's put on so much weight, man. He looks so bad. I saw Jim backstage. There was a lot of that kind of talk. But um, when you see the film and the footage now, he looks like a god. He's fantastic, you know. Um, so that was what it was like. And the next morning woke up and suddenly it was Donovan doing his thing. Then it was, well, you know, but he was quite a counter countercultural figure. And then uh, Tiny Tim appeared in a, a balloon across the fields. He was a, a hot air balloon. And that's how he came onto the stage. And then uh, Free. Now, I can't tell you, Free were some... You knew of them from Ireland, but they hadn't got all right now, or it was very new if it had. It wasn't what it was. And suddenly they come on in the afternoon, and suddenly they, it kicks off on that incredible solo and things. It's just like, my God, you were witnessing something so amazing. Um, so it was brilliant. And then uh, it went on, and the who, and then, it would, then suddenly, very important, the countercultural movements were. Uh, Hawkwind and Pink Fairies and people in IT, McFarren, the Deviants, they were playing outside, outside the corrugated iron wall. Because they they were not on the official bill, so they they'd, they'd sort of, in the spirit of the times, they'd turned up to do a sort of free festival outside the gate. You got it. And they were White <laughs> Panthers, and they said, this should be a free festival. Tear down the walls, tear down the walls. And by the third day or the second day, 
they tore down the walls and it was a free festival. And that edge, as you had to go through them, very very young, very mm. small, and it was not a loving vibe. It, mm. was a, it was a tough... You knew that this could be found. Also, the the, the angels were everywhere, mm. the hell's angels, and that always gave you a free song of slight fear, though people felt they were protecting us. But... Um, and they probably, you know, I think they'd have both. Um, so then it was a free festival, uh, and and then it went on all night. You know, mm. I couldn't, I couldn't stay awake for Leonard Cohen. He came on about five mm. in the morning, um, but the next day was Hendrix, and uh, and I just remember thinking, this isn't any good. He, he, this isn't good. He's no good. How can this be? Uh, he looked great, but he kept saying as he played, and people were going crazy. He kept saying this fantastic sort of. I guess a sort of blues thing. I, I ain't came yet. I ain't came. Mm. No, no, I haven't come yet. <laughs> but I ain't came yet, and that was like such an amazing thing because he just kept saying it. No, don't, don't applaud it. I'm not. I'm there not yet. there yet. No. Right, right. It was right. amazing. Um, and he was dead within a month or something. So mm. that was quite. That was amazing. It was interesting to to know to feel fully that 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 he wasn't present anyway that was it i got back and the police had been called right yeah i was gonna say so you got back how's the arm arm was terrible but it mm. didn't matter i mean i to have been there and to have met people older than me uh who were in their 20s who who were taking one's idea of music seriously and could tell you lots of things you didn't know. It was the beginning of a fantastic mm. journey. I mean, that guy, is, uh, Gary Khan, he was my best man at my wedding uh, about 15 years ago. So, I mean, right. still, he's a great amazing. friend. Amazing. I mean, so, like, a proper awakening then, right? Totally yeah. amazing. So you get back woke. You're actually yeah. now you're woken up. Yeah. And um, with your sister, older sister. Yes. Yeah, 20 months old. Right, yeah. so yeah. you're in trouble, yeah. right? You're in yeah, deep, you're oh, in deep, deep trouble. trouble. The deep police trouble. were there. Uh, we were called. Um, they, the parents had found out uh, that uh, our cousins had, 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 had let them in on a secret. And um, then uh, they called the police because they had had called the police. But the police said, there's nothing we can do. We can't find them. So they came in to tell us what to, uh, how, 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 despicable our behavior had been and how much we'd let down our parents which i think we knew but somehow i really felt i had a, to do it that was a deal that had to be done yeah yeah grounded grounded horribly grounded um taken away from the school uh sent to a rather tough school in ealing where the after the weekend you know what did you do and then i would say uh uh, I robbed these churches, and then he had these. Uh, he he got the the things that he'd stolen from the churches. I was like, and that didn't last long. But what was great about it was that it was so dreadful, and it was in Ealing, and that's quite a long way from Notting Hill. And they had to give me quite a lot of money to get there on the train, on the tube, and then on the overground. So I I realised that if I went at one stop early, I could run up the stairs at Holland Park Avenue Station on the way back and save a couple of quid. And on the way there, I could also do some kind of dodge that mostly worked. And I started amassing enough to get an album a week. My parents get, where, where have you got the money for these, for these albums? And I'd go into the HMV in Notting Hill Gate, which was run by a folk singer called Tom Yates, and I would just go in and he ask him for things and he would say, you shouldn't be, what you should listen to is this. And then he'd play me Blonde and Blonde or something like that. And uh, ultimately he, he, he started teaching me to play guitar and um, 
And uh, that was a very important thing because um, because I started getting these albums and because I was now doing my DJing thing with Jeff Dexter at the, at the Roundhouse, um, I couldn't really function at the school. I, it wasn't working for me at all, and I just felt I felt like I, I was now being punished and I couldn't fit in at the school and I couldn't... So I started like you do, uh, not going into school. So I'd get on the circle line every morning and I'd go round for a couple of times. That took an hour when it still could be the circle line or it took an hour each time. And then I'd pop up in Notting Hill Gate when everybody I thought was safe to go and go straight into HMV Records and start listening with the... With the so you get your own education in, right? Fantastic. <laughs> I learned more from a f- three-minute record than I ever learned in school. It's one of those. But then uh, what happened was uh, I started reading the underground press and I started reading Oz mainly because it had a picture of Mark Bolan on the front saying parents guide to drug abuse and it showed all the things that meant that he was a cocaine taker mm. it said and they found that in my school desk um, and they threw me out of school and my parents couldn't get me in anywhere um, because it was just coming into spring and they said, all right, you'll have to um, take the summer, spring and summer off and you'll start, we'll start somewhere new in September. And this was incredible. You were like, oh, really? <laughs> this was incredible because so it, was, it was, I'd started going into yeah. Oz magazine mm. and they'd allowed me to sit there. This was before the trial, before the obscenity trial that was coming up. And I just would sit in there and hear them all talking about music and things and slowly, slowly they let me be part of the, the it enough to talk about when the trial was coming up would i be part of this thing called friends of oz which would do some situationist um protests on the street could i be part of it as i was a as i was a as i was a kid and this was a school kids issue as i was a school kid and i'd been thrown out for having oz so now you've got the two strands of the political side mm-hmm which was awakening in me and then the underground music side of the roundhouse and all over Notting Hill was this, was Oz and the people from Oz and lots of talk about Sid's Floyd mm. and these things and these two separate sides were really very important. It was getting much harder and much more political. The acid things had dropped down and there were now different tribes. Mm. And one day at the roundhouse... Um, I I went there and the second band on in the afternoon were Kevin Ayers and the whole world and he had Lowell Coxhill the great saxophonist who was immortalised in Johnny Mitchell's For Free he was the one man band on the quick lunch stand playing real good for free and um, and the and the guitarist was 15 years old and he was my goldfield um, and, <laughs> and Kevin came on and he did this fantastic song for Insane Times which I think really sums up the to be free They look at him and they look at me A song for insane times and a song very much about those times and Nick you mentioned then Oz and actually of course the other big underground newspaper created by the underground of course was IT and we're just going to have a little intermission here where Paul is going to read a to give us a flavour of the times a, a couple of small ads from IT 
Two guys willing to do a little work in exchange for accommodation. Little bread, plenty of dope. But alas, anything considered, Judd, 16 Fairfield Avenue, real. Is there a chick in Oxford who would share her pad, her life, with a pleasant freak? Student, age 21. Wanted, commune for a chick and her cat. P.O. Box 12218. Cold blue tits. Bird lover has pad for a petite chick. P.O. Box 122. Fantastic. That, that, I think that's, that helps sum up how wonderfully inclusive people were. You know, I was a kid and they allowed me in. These people were all... If somebody wanted somewhere to crash or, you know, it was a, it was a idealistic time. I mean, of course, it didn't last, but it was fantastic. I mean, it is, it's quite moving in a way. I mean, they're, they're, sort of, they're sort of funny because this seems so out of our time, but there is, you, you put your finger on it, you, there's something precious about it, isn't there? Because that was a time when even a brief ad like that, you know, commune sort, you can imagine people thinking, yeah, we've got that, we can offer you that, come and live in this place in Notting Hill or whatever it is, and uh, and you know we were sort of laughing earlier about the you know the, the lingo, the kind of the the, the, uh, the bread and chicks and stuff like that. We, pads, we would crash and stuff like yep. that, and crushing. But yep. that was the time, wasn't it? I mean, do you remember that? And do you, did you feel oh, that? You know? Yes, yes. The, the words were fantastic, and then of course some of them have stayed and became used by bankers. Rip off, rip off was from the fabulous furry freaks. You know. Uh, that was a, a, a crumb comic that mm-hmm. was serialized in Oz and International Times in IT b- because it, the hipsters on the West Coast, uh, they, they didn't mind sharing their shit either. I mean, it was this wonderful thing. I, I've got to say, though, I've focused more on English music because that was what I was seeing here, but everybody was listening to American music. Mm-hmm. And it had moved from the wonderful bands like Love and the Airplane and Doors, and every, every, everybody had seen them at the Roundhouse in the sort of 68, which I obviously hadn't. But now, so much of it was, um, I think the feeling was it, was it was driven from the West Coast. But, but, but Britain had its own scene and, and was now flowering in its own way. Um, that, that was... Uh, but it, there was a feeling of a joined-up commune throughout the world, really. Yeah, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? That sense of this, the underground is not constrained by national borders. It's a, it was a global movement thing. On the, on the subjects of International Times, um, you know, Barry Miles, who um, you know, we've done various things with, he, he tells us, th- I still love this story, he said that you know, he, he grew up in Cheltenham or Sirencester or something, somewhere out in the Cotswolds anyway. Uh, and, of course, he, like you, he, you know, he wrote a letter to uh, William Burroughs and... Got a reply, <laughs> you know. As you do, as and, and as as a sort of fifteen-year-old, you know. And then he wrote to Ginsburg and stuff, and, um, and they all, all all wrote back to him from from you know city city lights and stuff. And uh, and then he got on the bus from Sirencester to London, and he knew he was a sort of he was a bookish kid, and he knew that he wanted to work in a bookshop. So he got off the bus at Tottenham Court Road and walked down Charing Cross Road and went into a bookshop and. Uh, said to the guy behind the counter, you know, I'm looking for a job. Do you know anybody who's got a job? And he said, you can start now if you want. So he started work immediately in the bookshop and he went out at lunchtime and got himself a flat on Dean Street. Fantastic. <laughs> but he said, 
there was no electricity in the flat. Right? They said, and things Soho at that time, you know, where we are now, you know, which is uh, now super expensive and corporate, then uh, very cheap to live. Yep. Nobody, as Miles said, nobody had much money, but then nothing cost very much. Right. That's right. A, a, a uh, house, one of those giant houses in Labrook Square, which I think last in Notting Hill, which just be- was probably the highest real estate in the world, in, in Britain last year, was 25 grand. But of course, no heating or anything. But right. there was no property boom. People didn't mm-hmm. own houses. Some people did, but they bought them for about three or four grand. Most people had um, a bed set somewhere. And all the people uh, that I knew, the Oz editors, Richard Neville and Louise Ferrier, his girlfriend, they shared a house with Jim Anderson, who was another of the Oz editors, and they were he was upstairs with his boyfriend, Warren. And, you know, because I lived around the corner at night, I'd go and they'd, you know, go and lie around and smoke joints and listen to the new fantastic music and hear them talking, talking politics, talking ideas. It was very, very interesting and Quite soon into that year, um, the Oz trial started at the Old Bailey, and so I I, I started going, and I went every single day, and I met all these other now young, uh, slightly older than me, but this group of other young... uh, music lovers and who were getting politically charged. The the mood was changing, there was Mm. no doubt. The, The feeling was that because Oz, there was a trial about an issue that had been uh, an issue of Oz that had been edited by school kids that was now deemed so um, obscene that it had to be in a major trial for the three editors though they had only edited it they hadn't written it the kids had written it Um, Is this the one with Rupert? With Rupert the Bear yeah Mm -hmm. with a big penis uh, so every day we'd be there and uh, there was a feeling now that uh, it lasted for the whole summer, lasted for six weeks or something, the trial, and every day the feeling was that the alternative society was now on trial Mm. and that the straight society had had enough and was trying to shut it down. So you had Caroline Kuhn from Release, who was they were a drug bust uh, for people who could help people with drug bust. She, John Peel, all the people, David Hockney, you know, all these people, counterculture people, came to try and defend the alternative society, our freedoms, and we as kids and hit the streets in protest. We had it. That was a wave, a summer of incredible protests, always done with this great flair, rather like Extinction Rebellion, Mm. you know, with people dressed up or, you know, endless wonderful things. And um, that, when they were found guilty, the editors, um, you know, John Mortimer was their QC, so you'd sit with them and listen to what John Mortimer, the author and playwright, was telling them uh, what what to do. I mean, it was so interesting and incredible. I must have felt quite pivotal because you, as you say, you've got this kind of you've got a, one culture against another culture, really. I mean, uh, underground culture and overground mainstream culture, yeah. right? In this kind of fractured point, right? Yeah. When I guess a lot of fears, post-war fears, are coming to the surface of. 
you know, people's parents and grandparents and stuff had done all this, fought in the wars, and this new generation seemed to be rejecting it all, and drugs and sex and pornography, and it was all kind of more, this very, it must have been a very heady mix, right? And it's catching on, because at mm. the same time you've got the Woodstock film, that may have been a year or two before, but now it's only just come out. So suddenly this thing is exploding, and you've got the Vietnam War, so you've got... America, people are getting politicised there. I mean, hardly, heavily politicised. You've got Black Power, you've got the White Panthers, you've got people saying, believing in violent revolution. And and then you've got the Beatles, uh, you know, here as well, getting involved with it all. I mean, when we had a giant march uh, for Oz... Um, I was at the back with a couple of uh, girls. I, I often like to be near the front of a march, but no, this one I wanted to be with these girls. They were fabulous, and I, you know, I had any chance. Right. So I, I, I was at the back, and then after about an hour and a half, my friend, we're marching through main streets of London, and my friend runs back and he goes, Nick, Nick, you've got to come to the front. John and Yoko are there. It's incredible. I just went into Woolworths to buy him some gloves because his hands were cold, some socks because his, his feet were cold. He went to buy some socks from Woolies for John Lennon. For, for John Lennon, and he went into, and, 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 and he said, go on, and go on. So I ran to the front and I grabbed, I see them, and I was like, oh my God, he's, like, he's got, you know, so he's got plastic bags on each hand so that he won't be able to be fingerprinted. He's in the denim, what? you know, the washed out, the very old denim. He bought, he was bringing that back and, this, and that cap on the side. And then I, I grabbed a micro, you know, I was handed the megaphone and I shouted, power to the people, power to the people. And you know, I heard the guy say, oh, we think this Giddle's going to go far. And <laughs> in, the, in the movement, he said, and I was the like, movement. wow. And then within moments, poof, we were at uh, uh, Hyde Park Corner and it kicked off and the police came in and there was a battle raging. And Yoko, incredible, and John, I mean, he wasn't that tall. Mm. And they came round, me and my young friend, and she went, look out for the children, John. We must look after the children. <laughs> Sorry for the much Japanese accent. <laughs> uh, but that's what it sounded like. And I, and she was wearing this black, beautiful bullfighter hat. You know, I mean, it, she she looked amazing. I've got to say, I was a kid. And there's Johnny. Oh, yeah, right. OK. And they, they got round us to protect us. It all kicked off and then it was much too complex and I've made my way down to Trafalgar Square where I ended up sitting in a pub with uh, Bernadette Devlin. Bernadette <laughs> she, Devlin. Was, um, she was very big in the uh, Irish, the Northern Irish, mm -hmm. the, you know, uh, the, the protest, uh, the uh, um, yeah, movement there. Uh, so w that was very interesting too because Ireland, you know, Bloody Sunday, all yeah. those things were... were we're paying it. We're joining up with this and saying this all has to change. You know, I mean, we've you know we sit here in the heart of Soho. Paul lives in Bloomsbury, the centre of town, and of course, you know this this part of town. When we talk about the county culture and you know London at the time, you often it often gets you know think about this area or maybe Chelsea, which was kind of fabulous and you know beautiful and stuff. But was there a sense that Notting Hill was more political than that kind of? bit of countercultural London because you you know you had you had UFO here and you had the Flamingo Club and but they only came things. up to here I mean most people were living in my experience in not most but but there was certainly a big group in Notting Hill and in Ham in North London mm. that's where Compendium Books was uh, the, and the Roundhouse and so you and, and a lot of those people that I met at, at the Isle of Wight at the Isle of Wight, at the uh, Old Bailey they 
they lived in North London and one would come up there. There was a lot of that. You'd get on the 28 bus and go, uh, just go straight to the Golders Green uh, bus station and s- smoke dope in a phone box with a young girl. It would be great. <laughs> How old were you at this time, by the way? 14. 14, right. 14 uh, and what was great, it was after the, unbelievably after the, um, after that that time on that march, when we regrouped, um, one of the people from friends of ours said, um, hey, John and Yoko said, if you, uh, if you want to use their um, facilities at uh, Tittenhurst Park, where they live, um, to make your manifesto, uh, for your little political group, you know, you're welcome. Wow. I said, oh right, <laughs> I, I, I haven't got a manifesto. I said, right, we'll write one. So we, we, we were called the Youth Action Committee, like an idiot. I put my home address, my poor old parents again. Um, <laughs> and it was a, the, 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 a fist smashing two canes was, uh, you know, Yak and, uh, and we started picketing schools and giving out these these things. Anyway, we went down to Tittenhurst Park, uh, which was pretty incredible, and uh, saw wow. everything. I mean, they had gone to New York about a week before, uh, but they called up when we were there, and um, and I remember someone saying, "Oh yeah, 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 wow, John, yeah, fantastic. I knew you'd love it." Hey, they're cycling in the village with Jerry Rubin, who is a major sort of countercultural figure. I was like, good God. And they had a white label of a new album John Leonard had made, and that had um, Imagine on it. And they played Imagine and Jealous Guy. And it wasn't until six months later when I got the album that I didn't realize that that whistling on Jealous Guy wasn't everyone in the room because they all did it because they all knew it um it was but it, that was amazing that really was incredible and seeing the way he lived there you know instead of Tittenhurst Park over the you know over the, the, the skyline you know the, the thing where you'd have the name of the house or the number he had this is not here you know it's like oh, <laughs> fucked with a young brain you know it's like right I'll work on that <laughs> do you I mean uh, were you you're a kid as well, so this is an odd question, I suppose. I'm just thinking, you know, because I grew up in I grew up in Bolton. But what about you, Paul? Where are you when you're 14? When I was 14, I was in Raynham, deepest Raynham, deepest in, Raynham in Kent, yeah. not Essex. But um, in Kent. So the thing is, is that we were aware that this was extraordinary times. Were you aware this is extraordinary experiences? Always just like, okay, this is the world. <laughs> no, I was completely. Oh, I felt that. I'd seen these things on the television and in the magazines that I read as I was like 10, 11, 12, and then I wanted to, I, 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 I more than wanted, I'd, I'd really taken it in deep. I'd listened, probably like all of us, but, you know, in the dark for hours, listening to the, the hidden messages in the, in, mm. in the songs and what it really was. I read everything about it, and then I felt that from this cataclysmic thing of running away to the Isle of Wight, it had opened up and suddenly right. I was part of it. It could have gone incredibly wrong. I now, I mean, people have always said that, but I mean, it didn't. Mm. It, it it wasn't. And I mean, we were. I was in some pretty dangerous situations. I, I learned, had to learn quite quickly because I didn't realize. You know, I, I mean, it's interesting. It, it, that summer rolled on. The Oz editors got. Um, released on appeal and the sentences were quashed and now 
Oz moved to another premises in the West End and the things started to change and you could feel the, 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 the counterculture was breaking down mm. into tribes, not the loved post-67, but now there was a harder edge and harder drugs were coming in mm. and into this in 1972, so when I was 15, into this world came the buzz of bands like the MC5 who are going to play Kick Out the Jams and they arrived and everybody was there and then the big one, the mother load, which was The Grateful Dead are coming. Now, if you don't know The Dead now, what they meant then was they were this, they were this, they were the entire movement in one way and everyone was there. They played at the Lyceum where my father had proposed to my mother and they played, the dead always played for six or seven hours and most people were on acid. Imagine, at four in the morning, they opened the roof of the Lyceum, they rolled it back and the dead was still playing. Okay, maybe it was two in the morning but we were all there and it was, how would they... What about the noise? What about the local people? And they, you know, the thing about the dead is it doesn't seem to me you can really pinpoint them with one track because you have to be there for three or four hours before Jerry would open up and then be the equal of Jimi Hendrix. He would take you into the universe with his playing. I mean, he, he would literally open up this thing, this seam that no one really was ever capable of doing in the same way. But when they arrived, it became clear it wasn't an acids thing so much as it was a cocaine thing. And um, suddenly the words about the cool people were starting to take coke. Mm. And their new album, uh, Working Man's Dead, had this song, Casey Jones, on it, which sort of nailed where it was coming from, a harder groove and a different sounding voice. Makes it on time, leaves at your station, out a quarter to nine. Nick, the Grateful Dead, I mean, uh, and you're saying, I mean, so cocaine, so the drugs are, are changing. I mean, there is this, there is this sort of version of the counterculture, isn't there, which is, says that you can trace the movement of music uh, through the kind of drugs that were around. So early 60s, you've got speed and the beats, and then weed or, you know, dope, as it says, comes in and it all gets a bit more flowery and hippie acid, and it starts to really expand and burst outwards. And then, of course, smack and heroin, you know, which starts to turn darker. And then, and then in the 70s, along comes Bolivian marching powder. And what, what difference did that make, do you think, then? I think it definitely changed the music. I mean, the uh, the, the the coke uh, would obviously make you want to listen to different grooves. You wouldn't be lying around in the dark quite as much, um, and it and it, it it was prevalent in. I remember. Uh, something that was played a great deal at the time, which really was always being de- told as the sound of cocaine, was uh, Sly and the Family Stone. And everyone was listening to that. There's a riot going on, which had um, uh, a family affair on it. But they were not only listening to that, but they were listening to the sound of the grooves. And uh, I think uh, you caught me smiling again. I remember them playing that at John Lennon's house down there. 
Oh, right, so that's the first place that you heard yeah. it, is it? Yes. Right. So yeah. he was into yeah. that stuff, was he? Was well, they were. Oh, they the, were. the countercultural mm. people who... He was very involved in the political scene, so he was... Mm. Not only was Paul McCartney helping with IT, but John Lennon had done a benefit for Oz. Uh, he hadn't done a benefit. He'd done... He'd recorded a, a, a track, God Save Oz, um, and uh, and was putting his weight behind it and was bankrolling various political right. groups. It's interesting because um, we had Twink in here and, you know, and drummer for uh, Pink Fairies and stuff, and uh, he was saying that you can't overestimate the impact that the Beatles and Lennon in particular had in coming to London. I mean, he was talking about the fact that... Because, you know, you hear so much about the Beatles and... He was saying that you can't actually overestimate it. It was the fact they came from outside. So they're outsiders from, from Liverpool. They come into London. I mean, apart from the Beatlemania and all that stuff that's been going on, but they, they seem to have had this massively kind of charging, energising effect. Is that right? I mean, Incredible. I mean, because every record that came out was a huge leap forward. The fact that they were around in London, the fact that when the hippie thing, when the countercultural started, they... I mean, your point is so right. They resisted. They resisted Beatlemania. They resisted it. They transcended it. And when Sid's Floyd were playing in Abbey Road, they went and sat in and listened to it. They went to see the Floyd play at the Alexandra Palace. John on acid, the famous scene of him wandering around with uh, John Dunbar, who started in Dika with Miles and who was... Um, Marianne Faithful's husband, you know, they were they they were completely in the scene and they seemed to they always said, Look, we didn't we these weren't our ideas. We were taking these things and funneling them and channeling them and so we got that and they were such incredible conduits. So it seemed to be that, you know, from from um from Sergeant Pepper to to the White Album, it's exactly how things were changing. You'd gone from within a year, you'd gone from psychedelics to denim, mm. uh, and back to actual played songs that were the burgeoning hard rock, uh, natural sounds that mirrored the band that were the band's first album, second album coming up. I mean. It was incredible. All these things seemed to be joined up, but coming through the Beatles, they channeled it through the Beatles. And I think people, I, you know, I met David Crosby and talked to him about this. And he said, he said that's what it, that, that's that was their feeling too. That they that the Beatles were the first point of port of call, and that you were picking up on this stuff too. But they they always seemed to have one sort of step ahead. Well, love me due to the White Album in less than five years. It's insane. <laughs> it's insane. Their work ethic. I mean, it just was unbelievable. And, and obviously not. About of learning, so you know, happy to come to these things and pick, you know, pick it up themselves, and part of it, bankroll in some of it, you know, sort of absorbing it themselves. I mean, that's quite a thing, isn't it? You know. And I often wonder, you know, um, Tibetan Buddhism is something I've been studying for twenty-five years, and they, how many of us in the Buddhist group would would have come to that way if it hadn't been for George Harrison? George mm. Harrison, you know. One of the three, but not the two big ones. George Harrison had a vast effect on on a, a, l l mid late twentieth century culture. I mean, mm. he was unbelievable. The Indian, you can't you can't overstate it. I mean, he was 
listening to, and as you say, listening and learning. And then, but he was turning the other two on. And what's incredible about George Harrison is that he's the only person in the sixties that didn't sound like John and Paul. You know, <laughs> he, he he had his own sound. Every one of his songs sounds completely different. He was mining his own furrow. And, and when he was asked why, he said, "Oh, if they could do it, I just thought, well, you know." Well, I, I probably could too. So, <laughs> God, I see. Right, okay. Give it a go then. Well, Paul, you were a big fan of all things that's past, aren't we? We were talking about it last week, yeah. Why do you love that album so much? Um, because it's timeless. It Initially, you go through a period when you're, when you're doing the college thing, you have to listen to that and you love it for that. You dismiss it for another 10 years because you can spot where it's come from. And then you go back to it going, yeah, but the songs are still great because the production sort of kills me at times. But now I'm back to it. Um, And All Things Must Pass um, is just, uh, as a single itself, is absolutely superb. So I went to see Neil Winnis last year. um, And he still plays that. He played that live saying, little story before, always probably always the same story. But it was so heartfelt and they were best friends. And he sung it and there was no no comedy to it at all he just did it beautifully and his band were amazing and he welled up and he's and it's still important to him and i, I mm. think you know that all things must pass has still got that for for me it was a people adore it, it comes up i'm friends who are a bit younger than me they 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 think it's better than any other you know probably mm. better than any Beatles records some of them i mean what's interesting when you mention the sound um Leon Russell, Delaney and Bonnie first came in 1969, and she wrote, Long ago, and off so far away, which became a hit for the Carpenters, a huge hit. But that was called Groupie Superstar, not Superstar. And the lines are, I can hardly wait to sleep with you again. <laughs> what to do to make you come again, right. come back and play for me your sweet guitar. And Clapton had played with them, and George Harrison had joined the, sh- sh- the shabang, Sharabang. And I'd gone to see them with my cousin in 1969 at the Albert Hall. And uh, what had happened was that their band um, had a lot of brass players. They were influenced by these, they had a lot of uh, stacked kind of sounding people. And it was Jim Price, um, all these people who went to join the Rolling Stones. They stayed in London when they were left behind. When uh, Leon Russell came and played his first album, they all played with him. So you had this fantastic horn section, Bobby Keys, Jim Price, all these people, and they were all in London. They were all living in the mansion block flat behind Kensington Market. People go, come on, we're going to have a joint with Jim Price. And you'd be like, oh my God, Jim Price. And everyone's album had them on them. Uh, so of course they were all on that. He was the nicest guy in the world. Um, and they, you know, and then they're on Peter Frampton's first solo album when he left Humble Pie. You know, they were the go-to. They were like our mm. Muscle Shoals, if you like, and that uh, that that horn, uh, f- uh, that horn thing, and a, and a, and a definite soulful funk mm. came into a harder groove came in. You could play if you wanted. You've caught me smiling again. Uh, by Sly and the Family Stone, because that shows that. Sly and the Family Stone. And a moment ago, we were talking about George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. And in fact, All Things Did Pass, and we got to the end of this episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture with Nick Laird closed. But it is just part one of a two-parter. We will be back with Nick and more stories from the underground next time. In the meantime, 
You can check out more of what we do at www.bureauoflostculture.com. See you next time.